welcome to the Master of Divinity podcast. Thank you for joining me. In our last episode, we reviewed the body in the Bible, uh, made in the image of God, swiftly booted from the garden, learning to never trust a talking snake. Next, we looked over some of the 613 commandments in the Torah uh, related to the body and considered the many ways Jesus healed others. In this episode, we continue to build an ethical foundation and delve into the history of bioethics. Episode 3 in this series, we look at the first half of life and episode 4, the last half of life. There will be homework. If you've been with me from the beginning, you will no doubt remember our trip to the supermarket in episode 10. Using such a simple and commonplace experience, we mapped out some of the moral questions that might arise. I was able to draw out four key principles, principles that give you a good sketch of the basic principles of Christian ethics. It's not the most comprehensive look, but it gives us a starting point and a handy reference as we move forward. We ended, you may recall, at the exit door, contemplating the rubber mat that became a world-class trip hazard. In addition, the simple rubber mat allowed us to locate the first three principles and define the fourth. So so here they are, to recap. Uh, pursue the common good, uh, society where people care for strangers. Uh, do no harm. A reasonable person will see that the mat is potentially harmful, it's folded over, and treat others as you wish to be treated. I wish the person before me fixed the mat before I nearly tripped and fell down. Using all of these principles together, we defined our fourth principle as develop a moral character. Ethicists speak of a moral disposition defined as a persistent desire to act in a certain manner. I want to do good, and so I will think about the quality of my character. Wanting to make society a better place for our children, wanting to avoid harming others, wanted, wanting to be treated in the way I hope to be treated, these are all aspects of moral character. So, taken together, the four principles, do no harm, pursue the common good, treat others as you wish to be treated, develop a moral character. If you check the page on the website for episode 10, that's at p2.ca slash podcast, uh, you'll see I've printed some cards for you. Uh, Not that you need moral prompting, but we may need them as we move into the next couple of episodes. Having them before us allows us to apply a principle to the moral feeling that we bring to various issues and scenarios. We might disagree on specifics, and we might cite different principles, but at least we're operating from the same common ground. So let's start with a somewhat lengthy definition of bioethics from the Joint Center for Bioethics at the University of Toronto. Think about the four ethical principles we just discussed. Do all or only some appear in the definition I'm going to share? Is there overlap? Is there anything missing? 
listen to the statement, uh, then perhaps take a moment to ponder. I'll, I'll print the statement on the page for this episode on the website. Ethics gives us a system of moral principles to guide the way we behave and treat others. Bioethics is the branch of ethics dealing with clinical health care and biological practice and research. It includes treating patients in an ethical manner, making ethical decisions in clinical research, and supporting the ethics education of healthcare professionals and trainees. It also involves having an ethical foundation for health policy decisions, such as what treatments to fund and operating healthcare institutions in an ethical manner. So, some, all, maybe, um, we'll set that aside and return to our overall topic for this episode, uh, the history of bioethics. And perhaps the most obvious place to start is with Hippocrates. Often called the father of medicine, he is most famous for his oath, still in use, though highly adapted over time. Many of the ideas and concepts we associate with medicine begin with Hippocrates, including the seemingly obvious idea of causation, that illnesses have a cause and are not simply given to us by the gods. Born in Kos, a Greek island in the eastern Adriatic, Hippocrates enjoyed considerable esteem in his lifetime, including two mentions in the writings of Plato. Uh, he wrote extensively, and these writings, along with those of his contemporaries, were gathered to form his famous corpus. It's within his corpus that we find the Hippocratic Oath. The oath is considered pseudonymous, written or collected by others, most likely after his death. That's your big word for the week, pseudonymous. Um, the oath draws on other parts of the corpus and provides a precise framework for ethical practice. The oath promises to share knowledge with other physicians, to be non-malevolent in treatment, to treat people equally, men and women, slave or free, and to keep matters confidential. It is the beginning of biomedical ethics, and it establishes the concept of an oath of conduct. Ironically, the most common words used to summarize the oath, first, do no harm, uh, do not appear in the oath, but have entered common parlance. Sadly, we don't have time to review the history of medicine in the West, uh, but the highlights would leap from Hippocrates to Galen, the guy with the four humors, black and yellow bile, phlegm and blood, uh, to uh, the crisis of the Dark Ages, the rediscovery of Galen, the rise of science in the Renaissance, the remarkable persistence of Galen, and the rise of truly modern medicine in the 19th century with germ theory and any and other innovations. Did I miss anything, doctor? Doctor? For a history of bioethics, we need to locate ourselves in the later period of medical history in the last couple of centuries, and particularly in the period after the Second World War. 
For this survey, I'm deeply indebted to Albert Johnson, writing uh, in Bioethics, an Introduction to the History, Methods, and Practice. Credit for the term bioethics falls to Van Rensselaer Potter, who sounds more like a character from the legend of Sleepy Hollow than a biologist and ethicist. He coined the term in 1970 uh, at the head of a wave of biomedical specialists worried about the moral implications of their work. A year later, the Kennedy Institute of Ethics is formed at Georgetown University, recognizing that rapid advances in medicine and related technologies called for an organized response. Special emphasis was placed on decision-making, assisting patients and families faced with new dilemmas, dilemmas created by advanced medicine. One such advancement, the development of artificial ventilators in the 1950s, created the dilemma of saving patients from cardiorespiratory death but leaving them unconscious. Similarly, the invention of the artificial kidney in 1961 meant that many more patients needed this technology than could be accommodated, and some would die without the new treatment. A lay committee was formed, nicknamed the God Committee, and given the difficult task of deciding this matter of life and death, who had access to the treatment. In an article in Life magazine uh, late in 1962, uh, we hear the story of the God Committee, and it prompted a national debate. On one side were the utilitarians, who argued that the social worth of each individual should be assessed, and only those who could make some future contribution to society should be saved. Others made the opposite argument, uh, saying that the inherent dignity of individuals required that judgments of social worth be repudiated and that the selection be made by random methods, such as lotteries. So, there's a debate. Utilitarian versus non-utilitarian. You you can pause the tape if you wish, but uh, don't be gone too long. It's a big debate. Johnson's history then moves into the 1970s, and a secondary question related to the first, but more in the realm of unintended consequences. The use of these technologies was meant to be temporary, keeping someone alive until other measures could be taken. But in 1975, the case of Karen Ann Quinlan forced another society-wide debate. She was in a coma for months and dependent on life support, and the family asked that the treatment be stopped and their daughter be allowed to die. When the hospital refused, the matter moved to the courts and to the court of public opinion. In this case, the Supreme Court of New Jersey agreed with the family's request. Next, Johnson looks at the issue of experimentation, beginning with 19th century French physiologist Claude Bernard. Bernard argued that medical experimentation was unacceptable if it caused harm to the patient, even if it was highly advantageous to science and other lives could be saved. This lofty goal remained a goal, and there are numerous examples of failures to follow it, up to and including the medical horrors visited on prisoners in Nazi concentration camps. 
The Nuremberg Code, 1947, written as the atrocities were being revealed, set strict guidelines around informed consent and called for a candid look at the risks involved in any medical experiment. Subsequent guidelines added a duty to only perform experiments that contributed to scientific knowledge, along with specific guidelines for research with children, the mentally infirm, and prisoners. The rest of Johnson's chapter highlights other milestones in medicine and the corresponding dilemmas that they created. Watson and Crick's discovery of DNA in 1956 and the potential for genetic manipulation. Dr. Christian Barnard's successful heart transplant, 1968, and the issues around organ donation, as well as the, as the nature of life itself. The birth of Louise Brown, 1979, following in vitro fertilization, and questions surrounding the manipulation and use of human embryos. And, of course, the birth of Dolly, a lamb created through cloning rather than through fertilization, 1997. We'll return to some of these topics later on. And such a list, of course, only scratches the surface of medical advancement and ethical questions. So, a question. Do any of these famous cases stick in your mind, and what do you think about them now? Take a moment if you wish. No history of bioethics would be complete without a look at the Roman Catholic Church and the long shadow cast over questions from birth to death. In this section, I'm leaning on the work of David F. Kelly, Professor Emeritus at Duquesne University. Professor Kelly begins with natural law, the concept that assumes that certain principles, rules, or norms can be found in the created order. God gave us the capacity to reason out these norms and become the human person God created us to be. This is not the same as laws found in nature, like Newton and his famous apple, but more like the Declaration of Independence saying we hold these truths to be self-evident. Before the Second Vatican Council, uh, traditional moral theologians would look at human reason, uh, revelation found in Scripture, and the teaching of the Church, and ask, what is the purpose of this act from a biological or a physical perspective? Such a question led to the conclusion, uh, as an example, that sex is for reproduction and for no other purpose. This included the so-called rhythm method, unavailable to Roman Catholics until 1951. Uh, Pope Pius XII somehow discovered that people were having sex for secondary ends, namely as an expression of love or to allay their lust. With the Second Vatican Council, the Church suddenly discovered context or what the moral theologians called the personal or human acts of their circumstances. This was a significant departure from the past, uh, looking anew at social and psychological implications of an action or a behavior. Of course, uh, Kelly concedes the conclusions were mostly the same, but the rationale was new. 
His example is the great Belgian scholar, Louis Janssens, who argues that contraceptive devices like the condom were wrong, not because they prevented pregnancy, but because they blocked unreserved, unrestricted self-giving in the marriage. Around the time of the Second Vatican Council, uh, a further shift occurred with the personalist approach, looking at context, becoming the most commonly held view within the academy. When John XXIII created the Pontifical Commission on Birth Control in 1963, uh, there was some hope that the liberal view of the academy would be embraced by the church, but it was not to be. After three years of consultation, and in spite of 80% support for changes uh, on the commission itself, uh, the new pope went with the minority opinion. One member of the commission said it was as if they had found some old unpublished encyclical from the 1920s in a drawer somewhere in the Vatican, dusted it off, and handed out. So, a question. Looking at your key ethical principles card, those four principles, what would you tell Pope Francis about contraception? Take a moment, if you wish. Somehow we drifted into the third episode of this series, so I'll I'll stop there. Uh, Next time we're going to look at abortion in Canada and the ways in which my denomination, the United Church of Canada, addressed the issue. We're also going to look at a couple of 2018 articles in Broadview Magazine, the magazine of the United Church. Um, I've added links to the page for this episode at p2.ca slash podcast. A couple of excellent articles on menstruation and the so-called pink tax. Think of it as homework, or don't. Uh, Again, thank you for joining me.